Hi everyone, this is Raoul Pal, the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, and welcome to my podcast. Every week, I'm lucky enough to speak to tons of smart and innovative people in the financial game. I get so much insight from these conversations, and that's why I wanted to start this podcast, so I can share that knowledge with you. I hope you learn from the discussions, and you can always find more in-depth content at realvision.com. Enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Raoul Pal's Adventures in Crypto. This is Sergio Silva sitting in for Raoul. I'm really excited to be here today with two um, institutional investors in the NFT space, AC and Basub Yum, both members of Punk 6529's Investment Fund Committee. Gentlemen, how are you? Welcome to Real Vision. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Oh, thank you guys for being here. I, I'm really, really excited on the personal side because this is Batsub Yum's first ever uh, podcast um, appearance, I believe. And we follow, we've, we as the space have followed your journey pretty closely, given you're one of the thought leaders. So I, I feel really, really honored that, that you chose to, to come here today and, and talk to us more about the NFT space. Um, and AC, you are somebody who's been very visible lately. You're a big collector in the generative art space. Um, so also very, very excited to to discuss what you guys are doing and the fun, what you guys are seeing in the market. And obviously, you know, this crazy, crazy crypto world that's been quite the ride over the last 18, 24 months. With that, let's jump in. The audience might not know you very well, especially with your NFT names, um, but just so that everybody is on the same page, Batsoup is one of the most legendary one-on-one collectors. He's been a big supporter for individual artists in the space. Um, Batsoup, what is your background and how did you come into NFTs? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, um, I, my background is in traditional finance. Um, I was in uh, New York City for many years, worked in, in, you know, in that space. I uh, decided to leave traditional finance in around 2014 and just run a family office. And, and one of the main things I did uh, before I got into NFTs was I, I spent a lot of time giving back. Uh, so I decided, I don't know if this was a soul cleanse because of all my time at Wall Street or if I, you know, it was just always a part of me. But I decided, you know, I'm going to do a little, you know, not more than a little, a lot more charitable terrible work. So then 2020 rolls around and, and I'd always had a passion for crypto as well. I got involved not quite as early as the OGs, but, you know, 2015, 2016 timeframe. And I decided, you know, I've always been attracted to crypto because it had this, this aspect to it that had cut out intermediaries, cut out traditional finance, you know, my, again, my former, my former uh, job and, and, and really had this trustless, permissionless, you know, structure to it that was super attractive to me. Um, and I lived through 08. I, I made, I did really well. I'm you know, sorry to say in 07 and 08 in some respects because it was a difficult time. But, um, you know, the whole financial system almost collapsed. That was where I spent a lot of my time and, and you know, had a successful exit out of that, that time period. And I learned a lot. And one thing, one of the main things I learned was that, you know, trusting, you know, centralized parties with a lot of power can be very dangerous. And you know, here we sit today, and, and one of the largest exchanges on planet Earth just went is just about to go out of business and not go out of business, but sell themselves to uh, one of their largest competitors. So, in any event, twenty twenty rolls around, and and I I start looking at NFTs, and I think to myself, you know, this crypto had always been for me 
really interesting for the nerds. And by that, I mean people who are really passionate about these values and these libertarian values and these sort of like, you know, these technolo technological values that cut out, the, again, the intermediaries. And NFTs were the first time I ever looked at it and thought, this is the, the, the use case for bringing it out from the nerds to the masses. And that, to me, is where I had that aha moment. So fast forward to today, what I decided at that time and, and where I sit today is that I am really, really passionate about helping creators. I feel like creators generally get screwed uh, with intermediaries. I mean, just ask any musician, uh, most artists. Um, you know, it's just a long history of creators not getting their due and, and intermediaries taking rents along the way. So that really fit well with my thesis about giving back. That fit well with my thesis about intermediaries. That fit well, well with my thesis about the use case for NFTs. And, and, you know, here I am today and, you know, trying to do my best to continue to support that and also uh, move the space forward. That's awesome. It's a very holistic way of looking at the space. I think something that you don't see a lot from from latest entrants that are you know mostly driven by by the hype. AC, what about yourself? What's your background, and how did you come into NFTs? So I come from uh, more of an entrepreneurial background than bats. I was a uh, I was an airspace uh, founder, and that means like you know my niche was sourcing aircraft parts. Um, kind of with this like there's this technical arbitrage i like to call it within uh different boeing and airbus kind of classifications where you know there's like inefficiencies i guess in this aerospace market that continues um it's a very manual kind of analog system uh so come from that background and kind of actually you know so this is a world where like provenance is is the part is worthless if the traceability of it is um is compromised in any way and so the provenance was like you survived as well as you um preserved where your parts came from and so i kind of got into using bitcoin as this ledger to like anchor uh i would hash like you know these traceability files and then like anchor them into bitcoin and then try to teach my customers that it was cool and it was just like, you know, it just didn't, you know, so um, it, it didn't really go anywhere because, you know, Bitcoin has its, uh, it has its limitations as, uh, you know, I say this as a Bitcoin miner and somebody who's loved it for a long time. So um, kind of led me, you know, uh, it, it simultaneously in a separate path, I enjoyed collecting art, uh, being a Miami local, Art Basel's like the Super Bowl and I would just be curious. And so, um, it kind of leads me to collecting generative art before NFTs were really blowing up. So like 2018, 2019, a friend of mine, uh, Sophia Garcia, kind of curated these art shows with Dimitri Cherniak and with Tyler Hobbs, names that now like are, are champions of art, artists in the generative art space. And so uh, back then they were selling for like 500 bucks. And I bought one of their pieces, Tyler's pieces, uh, back in 2019. And then, you know, on this provenance mindset, I was like, wow, uh, using art blocks, an artist is able, like Tyler, when I bought the piece, printed the code, the JavaScript of it, handed it to me in paper, and um, I didn't know what to do with it. I was kind of like, uh, you know, thanks, is this a certificate? Or <laughs> um, So 
it was interesting. And then art blocks, I was like, wow, everything that was clunky about the physical purchasing that print that Tyler did is perfectly tokenized. And then, you know, it, it just clicked in this one uh, very esoteric moment where I was like, ah. So anyhow, fast forwarding to kind of um, realizing what Artblocks was doing, collecting it as early as I had that aha moment and kind of having the mentality of like, this is 2013, 2014 Bitcoin from when I was paying attention to things. And this felt so new. I was like, okay, the generative art was already a genre of art with respect. And now it's like merging with the blockchain as a way of, you know, and then thinking in my aviation background, provenance existing on this ledger is going to take over everything. And so uh, what would the art on that ledger and the early like cave paintings to use a, a cheesy example, but what would the early art from that period uh, be worth if this really does line up the way I kind of foresaw things. So uh, that's my story. And I'm happy to continue it uh, with Bats and the other members of the team. No, that's awesome. I think, you know, two of the main pillars of the space, one being provenance and the other one being the ability to cut out middlemen or at least really minimize their, their pricing power. Um, the fact that you both have backgrounds in industries that, that led you to that and now, you know, converge in the NFT space is super interesting. And that's why I'm really excited about this conversation today. Now, your personal collections, again, AC, you're more on the general art side. Bats, you're more on the one-on-one side, but you both collect across the spectrum. Um, you are members of 6529 Capital, uh, which is the largest NFT collecting fund out there led by Punk6529, but you guys have a fairly large team. How did that come about, right? 6529 came into the space almost, you know, maybe one would say a few months really after it really started popping off. Um, Road to Prominence, writing some really insightful threats. Um, and then the fund was announced and you guys were on the team. Walk me through, you know, connecting with Punk6529 and also, you know, deciding to really create what is now, like I said, the premier NFT investing fund. It was, you know, it, it felt like a higher calling when he came to me because I was kind of like in this, um, this like self-collecting bubble. And then he kind of had this way of painting the big picture and saying, you know, if it's not us, it's like the citadels of the world just coming and like literally the institutions coming. I mean, obviously something has to exist for the big institutions to think there's something worth taking in our, in our, in our market. But um, it was like other people will raise the money. And, and so he kind of had this calling of like, we are Web3 native, he, you know, uh, Punk6529 and I, I realized in hindsight, we followed each other on Twitter for quite a while uh, once he realized. So anyhow, um, I, I, I kind of was like, okay, uh, I could, I could put my own collecting aside for this. This is something that feels um, worthwhile. It's like, if we don't do it, you know, again, it could be done by people with less, uh, you know, with not the same ideals of, of like, you know, a crypto specific crypto, um, uh, a crypto birth movement, we'll call it. So yeah, I mean, bats, please shed light. <laughs> this is a funny story. Actually, I um, had spoken with 6529 a couple times middle of last year we were you know we were collecting and bidding against each other and, and so forth um 
gained a healthy amount of respect from back then. I, I, I'm on a flight. I go to NFT NYC. This was Halloween of 2021. I get off the flight and I have a message and it's from 6529 saying, hey, um, I'd like to talk to you. I'm, I'm down in Soho having a drink. Um, would you please join me? And it's like, I think my flight landed at 830. And normally I get to New York. I used to live in New York. And my initial reaction is, don't answer the phone, don't respond to any messages whatsoever. Because typically what it means is it's it's someone, and I end up spending, you know, three, you know, till two or three o'clock in the morning, and I feel like shit the rest of the trip. And I just, that first night, I'm always kind of like trying to be sacred about, about not going out. So I don't know what it was, but I decided to respond. And I said, okay, I'll come have a drink. So I hop in an Uber, we head down to Soho, and it's the village. And of course, on Halloween, like an idiot, I forgot that the village has the Halloween parade. So the, the Uber could get nowhere near this place where I'm supposed to meet 6529. I have the guy drop me off about a mile away, and I'm walking through the Halloween parade with my rollerboard bag, looking like a complete dumbass. I finally find, I get to the place, I finally find the place, and it's absolutely packed, and there's no one there whatsoever that you would think could possibly be 6529. He's not answering his phone. He's not responding to DMs. I'm walking around this place with my rollerboard, and finally I'm just like, fuck this, I'm out of here. So I'm on my way out, and it just so happens that there's one person in the entire place and that could, might be it, and I have like a, you know, I'm thinking that there's like a 2% chance this is him. Uh, and, it, and I went up to this person, and, and it, it turned out to be him. And yes, we ended up staying out till 4 o'clock in the morning, much to my chagrin. So that was the initial the initial meeting. The, the real hook, though, the real, the best, you know, for me, the main reason why I'm here and the main reason why I'm so excited about this is really the decentralized metaverse that 6529 and team are building. Um, the investment team is fits in perfectly with this. We can buy Grail art and put it on display in the metaverse in a very decentralized uh, fashion um, on open rails. So, you know, the, the, you know, I said that I spent a ton of my life, you know, recently giving back. The thought of Mark Zuckerberg running the metaverse is so disgusting to me that in a way, 6529, you know, as I was having this sort of moment of just complete and utter disgust, 6529 was here with a solution to this problem. And, and I took to it immediately, like absolutely immediately. I think it's brilliant. Um, it's a brilliant way to attack the metaverse and, and build the metaverse, quite frankly, in a way that is open, decentralized, and, and not really controlled by one person. I mean, we're looking right now at what Twitter looks like under Elon Musk, and the first 48, you know, 72 hours have not been great. Um, why? why? Why does the CEO of Twitter get to control the short messaging platform of the, of the, of the internet? So that's the main reason uh, why I'm here and, and how we met. Those are awesome stories. I have my six five two nine story as well, but uh, I'll, I'll leave it for another conversation later down the road. Um, AC, you mentioned the higher calling, and Bats, you mentioned, you know, having that mission of helping the open metaverse. Um, however, you guys are still running an investment fund. I'm assuming your investors are in for the profit; they're looking to get a return on their capital. How do you guys kind of, you know, balance both sides? And um, you know. I would love to hear maybe a little bit of what is the investment pitch when you go to one of these institutionals and say, hey, give us millions of dollars. We are doing X, Y, Z. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's definitely, uh, it's been an honor in this like fiduciary relationship alongside like some very legendary partners. Um, wildly impressed with like 
bad sweep, six flight two nine, broad. Everyone has kind of this experience um, uh, of really just like, I don't know, uh, utmost professionalism. Um, so I think the, the broad thesis for the fund is that, you know, in, in a world that's increasingly going digital, um, you know, it, it, again, do you want these assets to belong on a Facebook or Google server or do you want them on a uh, sovereign decentralized chain? And so uh, I think, you know, for the most part, people are going to follow the latter. There's difficulty in that. There's like, you know, pure sovereignty. There's, you know, there's these things that will be ironed out. And so a lot of our fund investments are also, uh, or 10% of our fund is to back infrastructure in this, in this, uh, in this space on NFT onboarding, et cetera, uh, web three onboarding, right? So infrastructure that could uh, bring a hundred million, a billion users to the open metaverse is kind of like our calling. But um, so we, we, we think, we think that in a world where like, you know, crypto's market cap is a trillion dollars uh, and fungibles are 99% of that and non-fungibles are 1%. <clears throat> we think that, you know, we kind of want to take that that trading pair on the non-fungible side where um, a lot of the world's like the intangibles in the like NASDAQ balance sheet are in the several trillions. Uh, so we think a lot of intangible value will be represented through tokens. And in a world where that's, that exists, like <clears throat> there's going to be these power law size returns similar to tech and similar to art where there's like power laws at the Louvre you go to see the Mona Lisa and where there's power laws in like online search or short messaging service, there is going to be power law returns in essentially owning these tokens, these, these grail assets, these like uh, these early artifacts of this movement, right. As like, you know, uh, so, so as we onboard kind of not all traditional finance, but the efficient parts. And as we onboard a lot of, uh, you know, things into, ERC seven two one standard or seven twenty, um, the ability to own these non fungibles is is like a, 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 you know we we see that there could be outsized returns uh, in this like one percent of crypto market cap trade against the rest of it, and then we think obviously in a ten year time frame everything is going to you know uh, crypto is going to eat a lot of uh, you know uh, the global balance sheet, and so that's that's kind of the thesis. One of the main points Raul has made about, you know, the tokenization of intangibles on, on corporate balance sheets. Uh, and it's interesting to hear you guys all, you know, use it as part of the pitch. That's, um, did you want to add something to, to what AC said? Yeah, I would say, the, you know, the, just to add to this, the basic pitch is as follows. The, the, you know, the Louvre has 35,000 works on display at any given time. The Louvre owns 380,000 works. The Louvre is perhaps the greatest museum on planet Earth, or one of them. And yet, if you ask a normal person to name, how many pieces do you know at the Louvre? Maybe two, sometimes three. Mona Lisa, Venus de Milo. And most people tend to get stuck there. And the point of the story is that power laws exist in our, into a very, very, very extreme um, case. If you combine that with meme culture um, and this sort of culture of being able, uh, you know, spreading the word on the internet um, rather than word of mouth, it becomes extraordinarily powerful. So the, the the way that the you know, I mean, look at think about things that you know as memes today. For example, um, "Make America Great Again" is a meme. 
uh, Just Do It by Nike. There's a meme. Everybody knows those. If, if you can spread that via, you know, the internet and combine that with the power laws and art, like I said, it becomes very powerful. So the basic pitch for the fund is that we have, we believe, a very short amount of time to try to acquire the top pieces that we believe will exhibit power laws over time. And if we're successful at it, I'm not saying we will be, but if we're successful at it, the return profile of of a fund like this could be quite dramatic. Um, I think it's still TBD. I think every day that goes by, even in a bear market, validates the thesis. I mean, there's no question digital art is art, right? I mean, it, it, people tend to say, well, it's NFTs. And I feel like, you know, I, it was funny. I saw last week Reddit onboarded 3 million wallets by to NFTs by not calling them NFTs. They called them digital objects. But, you know, the, the general public hates the term NFTs. But if you set that aside for a moment, digital art and digital objects are very, very valuable. They will be very valuable to you in your in your life as life goes on. And digital art is unquestionably art. Blockchain happened to come along and turn digital art into something that could be validated as, you know, owned and, you know, when was it created and so on and so forth. But digital art has always been a thing. It just happened to find blockchain along the way. So I don't think there's any question that digital art is A, art, and B, going to be incredibly valuable in the future. I think the only question in my mind is, how does that manifest itself? You know, which artists rise to the top? What kind of art will people prefer versus others? You know, generative art, I think, is a spectacular use case for for the uh, for the digital art medium and NFTs. Uh, so we spend a lot of time there. You know, I mean, it's still a lot. You know, it's so early days. A lot of it's DVD, but uh, but I, the the end to me is is not uncertain whatsoever. We are heading towards a very dramatic uh, upswing uh, for the digital world. That actually leads me to my next question, which is drawing on on your experience managing funds and hedge funds uh, in the traditional finance world. What are the parallels to your investment committee? Like, how do you guys you know, choose those artists who you think are going to exhibit those power laws? You know, what is give us a little insight into you know what that boardroom meeting is like uh, when you guys are deciding you know who you're going to collect, how much to pay for them, and uh, how you're going to execute those trades. I mean, I remember living through 2008 and every single day you would wake up and the market was a roller coaster. I mean, I remember driving along the highway and seeing, you know, again, 2008, I had a really good year. I was driving along the highway, I'd see somebody mowing the grass and thinking, I wish I were that guy. That's how crazy it was. You know, like that's the kind of like environment we were in. And there are days, I have to tell you, in this space where I wake up and I think the exact same thing, it is insane. It is, you know, running a fund on steroids, you know, with, with too many cups of caffeine and cocaine. I don't know. Like, I've never seen anything like this. This is insanity. And it's 24-7. I mean, you know, blockchains don't shut down on Christmas and New Year's. I mean, I'm sorry, but you've got to be you've got to be on your game. So, you know, that's sort of the general backdrop. For us, you know, I, I don't think, you know, and this is something that I've practiced my entire career. I, I'm not and we're not going to be the people that go on a mission of discovery, trying to figure out who the next people or who the next, you know, Van Gogh or who the next, you know, that's, I'm, I mean, the, you know, I kind of am hesitant to say this, but I don't have a strong art background. You know, this is not like, I'm not going to be the person that goes and curates the next digital museum in, in Dubai. Like that's, that's not who I am. 
But what I can do is I listen to markets and what this team does really well. And I, and I, I would throw AC very much in this room. We listen to the market. We see where trends are emerging. We try and not outsmart what the market is try, is doing. Now, it turns out this market does a lot of really stupid things. So we have to be extraordinarily thoughtful about how we approach it. Uh, and we are. We spend an unbelievable amount of time on price and on which artists, which pieces. But that being said, it is not a mystery to me who the who are likely of the top five greatest selling artists right now on the web. You can go find them. Of those of that group, that is the highest probability group to exhibit power laws over time. So we're going to start there and start thinking about, you know, what's the right price for art in that in that group. So AC, I don't know if you want to add that, but go ahead. I mean, it's yeah, hard to dispute anything you said or uh, or add much more color because it was it, it, you know I think that is how we operate. I think um, that is kind of the gift of having you know six like nine and, and Batsu kind of as operators now fund fund operators in a very inefficient space like early like <laughs> so a trillion dollar market cap on total crypto and I don't know, 10 billion on NFTs, if it's like 1% of the total crypto market cap. So um, I think it, it it's like, there's a serious advantage to the way that we're operating uh, given our partner backgrounds. And, um, you know, again, we do have curators. We do use like, you know, we'll, we'll like contract some curators and, and help us on the artistic approach of things and kind of, um, so we do get the, the like feedback loop kind of, of what has worked in, you know, in, in the past and what has scale in, in kind of what crypto does. Um, but I happen to agree with like, uh, managing his portfolio, uh, the way that Batsoup has, has kind of done and led us like, you know, uh, him and 6529. Um, let me end it there. I think he, he answered that pretty perfectly. <laughs> You know, I would say the only thing I would add is that, you know, <laughs> we we talk to each other, obviously, about every single investment. This is not a, um, you know, hey, I really want to buy a punk. You know, I'm going to go buy it. Like, you got to bring your A game. I mean, you, you know, we're not going to sit here and be like, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. Well, we should really go and, 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 and spend, you know, invest LP money buying a punk that they can just go out and do themselves. Like, I'm, I can go buy a punk right now. Like, why do I need 6529's team to do that? So every single investment is highly scrutinized. I'm sure AC is sick of me jumping down his throat about, you know, everything that happens at the fund. But that's why we're here. We're we're not here to, like, you know, that's how you generate alpha. We're not here to, like, I mean, I can go market buy anything. Why, why would I do that? I, you really have to, like... I I, <laughs> I spent, you know, tw you know, 20 years on Wall Street or, you know, however many years it was, and, you know, I'm working harder now than I ever worked in my 20 years on Wall Street, right? It's like it an unbelievable amount of effort put forth to try and, and, and you know, and, and find the right things and invest in the right things. But I think it's paying off. No, it's, it's for sure. You know, you see, you see six, five to nine capital moving in the space. And obviously you guys are tastemakers in that, you know, while you might not be doing, you know, the, the finding of brand new artists, as, as you alluded to earlier, Bats, when you guys either personally or through a fund buy a piece, uh, the artist gets, a lot, a lot of airtime and a lot of interest and attention. How do you guys personally balance that power that you guys have 
with really, you know, keeping to the ethos of the space, which you both talked about at the beginning of the conversation? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, because I think it's, it, you know, if, if listeners are not aware, all, essentially all transactions are public. Um, you know, this is not traditional art where like, you know, uh, transactions are like pretty obfuscated and, you know, who's buying what and at what price, like every, for the most part, everything's on chain. Uh, an OTC transaction still shows that we obviously acquired an artist. And so um, I think it comes with a lot of, uh, I've had regret on some purchases where like, you know, um, the market is like really right behind us and just like jumps on something. Um, but, you know, you kind of have to, uh, you kind of have to be mindful of it. I think it's definitely something now that's like first of mind as we make a decision, it's going to be public. What's going to happen? What's the consequences? Are we filled here? Should we make sure uh, we fill in one in one bite? Uh, you know, how do we want to kind of, you know, we it's like you want to fill a position on an artist. And as soon as you buy one piece, you're you're already, yeah, not necessarily anointing, but someone mindful could, could see what you just did. So, um, you know, so, you know, we, we definitely operate with scrutiny amongst each other as partners. And then how does this affect the market? And uh, I think it, it adds some fun to things when like, uh, you know, I think just two weeks. So I think there was like Loie Hollowell is a traditional artist with a wait list at Pace Gallery. She's like, you know, I've spoken to physical collectors who are like, I can't believe she's doing an NFT. I can't even get her physicals. And so, um, you know, we executed quite, quite quickly on this where we knew that her market was not going to know how to set up the MetaMask on time. Like we, we went ahead and filled and we saw quite an outsized return since our, um, you know, since like kind of the success of this project. And uh, sure enough, the next time that wallet bought something, uh, there was like 30 transactions behind it. So, um, you know, those, those things uh, happen in crypto where maybe, you know, maybe on a centralized exchange, you don't get that kind of pure transparency. So it's a good question. Uh, we navigate it as, as like professionally as we can, um, but obviously we are trying to do best for our investors and fill at the best, you know, uh, at the best cost basis. And so we have to we have to really be surgeons and precise on executing. And that kind of is where uh, look as as Bats has said, any of our LPs could go and buy a punk, or they could tell their son to go buy a punk. Um, we do not sweep we do not sweep floor punks. That's not what we're here to do. We are here to be like, you know, precise missiles on, you know, where we land. Um, and so it comes with a lot of attention, but I think it's made us a lot better operators in the market and way, way more efficient than when we were ever personal collectors. Um, That's anything to add to that? Yeah, I, you know, I would say that, um, uh, you know, just as back way background, I think I'm pretty sure we are the largest buyer of NFTs in the world today. I don't expect that necessarily to be the case, you know, three, four, five years from now. But, it, it, you know, we for sure are today. And we know it. And we take that responsibility very, very seriously. So there are different ways to support the space. In my mind, this is me talking. This is not 65295 fun talking, but there are different ways to support the space. We are supporting it financially unquestionably right now anybody can go into our wallets and see what we've been buying see how what we're doing and in fact that happens as ac just said you know the louis hollowell drop is a good example there's also overt support on, on social media which we do quite a bit of 
And then you could even take a step further and buy out a big room at our Basel and, and, you know, these big, large venues to promote it that way. We were at inning one, in my opinion, very, very tip of the iceberg and supported the entire space. We, we could be doing a ton more. Uh, um, the question is, you know, what does that look like and what's the best way to do it? And I don't know that anybody has necessarily cracked that yet. I mean, you can't even, you can't even buy a display that is, you know, user-friendly, functional, and so forth without paying $30,000 to do it. It's like, I, I, I cannot stress enough how early this is. So I feel like, you know, we are learning alongside the space. We want to promote, we plan to promote everything in this space. Right now, we're very overtly doing it financially, like I said, but but we are very cognizant that that we can do a lot more. Thank you for that. That was very thoughtful and insightful. Um, kind of just building up on, on supporting the space and what you mentioned earlier about 6529's uh, focus on, on really helping the open metaverse. Obviously, the project that you guys have launched, which uh, for the audience, if you're not aware, uh, OM is a free to visit, free to use um, metaverse world built on on cyber, um, which six five two nine and and the team have been allowing different artists and different communities to build galleries on it, to build different presences on it. It's become kind of a uh, gathering place for for these virtual communities. What is you mentioned why you guys did it? But what is next? What is really the ultimate goal besides bidding? You know. Mark, like what is what is the view here? What's in fifteen years? What you guys would like to see uh, OM become? I'm going to punt that question because I think it's better for six five two nine to answer than for me. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 you know, yes, with bats, but it's like someone asked me the other day to predict it, and I was like, I don't, you know, I, I would prefer not to because. If I could predict it, then it's already the past. I've already kind of conceived it. It's just supposed to go and happen. And I think it's fun to be in the space investing in founders who are eager to execute their vision of it. And so, um, you know, it's like it, a lot of hubris in, in a specific answer on what it should look like. I think I'll answer it with excitement for being surprised. And um, hopefully, you know, hopefully we are surprised because like things if if we could predict what the metaverse will look like, uh, I don't think anyone's been wildly excited. And I mean, obviously, you know, it's a hype word and people love to. Um, but, you know, like if it's Ready Player One or like Facebook's vision of the metaverse, then uh oh. But if there is genuine surprisal, it's because some entrepreneurs have done things that are zero to one. And I think um, I welcome that, and I would hate to try to predict it. Um, I, I would I would say that we do look at the founders who are eager, and it's it's an honor, honestly. Uh, these are the best of the best. I've seen top talent from Instagram, um, like quantitative minds that shame a lot of the other big names in the space. Like we finally have founders building products that they want to see, and uh, this this collection. This, you know, uh, not a, not an art collection, but an assortment of founders doing this is a net benefit for uh, free and sovereign citizens online, which is like, I mean, what no better world to kind of look forward to.
Yeah, I would just add Ohm has the uh, Ohm currently has by far. I mean, I don't think there's anyone here close. By far, the largest collection of digital art on on the planet. I mean, there is no thousands of galleries set up by artists, set up by myself and the team, <clears throat> the funds. The 6529 Museum is maybe the greatest collection of digital art on, on the planet. That's in there. It, it is, it's spectacular. Um, and starting with that kind of culture as, as your backstop, to me, it, it says a lot about how we view our view of the metaverse. Um, I don't know where it's going to go exactly. Again, I think 6529 is a much better person to ask this question. I would just say that before I joined this team, I was living a very comfortable life, um, working, you know, in charities, working, you know, <laughs> nine to five. I, know, I was very happy uh, with that life. And I would never have uh, joined this team if I didn't believe so strongly in the vision. I, and I believe as strongly today as I did that. I really think this decentralized metaverse in the direction this is heading um it, it needs to happen it has to happen we cannot have a world where we are looking through a pair of ar glasses that mark zuckerberg is is standing behind i just it just it, it like i said that is a very scary place to me yeah and i think to finish i think bats thanks for that i think to to tie it with like the open metaverse i think 6529's vision is kind of like with my answer to just empower the people who could build it with like the tooling to not have a barrier of entry or like we, we didn't sell digital land. We didn't do any like 6529's vision of the metaverse is like, you guys got to build it. The creators have to build it. So it's an empowering thing. And, you know, so um, I think, you know, he would answer it much more eloquently, but um, yeah. Oh, awesome. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. And we'll definitely get 6529 hopefully back on the show. Um, if anybody has seen the video, um, the interview between Raul and 6529 is probably one of the most riveting conversations I've ever heard, not just in Real Vision, but, but in my life. Um, one of the cliches of the industry really is that, you know, it's still too early. Um, it's obviously a fact, right? It's, it's by nature, it's still too early. It's been only you know, a year or two, but we are already seeing some of the shortcomings of the space as well. I think currently, you know, the NFT space and even the crypto industry as a whole is really facing some challenging times. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of brains being put to work are trying to make things better. But what is your current assessment of the NFT space, especially as it comes down to the fact that you know royalties, which are the lifeblood of you know supporting artists and, and making sure that artists are rewarded for their work. Well, the fact that they're not enforceable by smart contract and they're more part of the social layer. Um, we'd love to get both of your takes on, on, this, on this current moment. I think NFTs currently today fit into three broad categories. Profile pictures, which we call PFP, even though it's only two words, which is, I don't know how that came about, but whatever. Um, generative art and one-of-one one art. And, and there's other stuff, you know, there's sports and things like that out there. But, you know, if you think about it generally, those three broad categories. The PFPs have really dominated the conversation. You know, that's really punks and, and board apes and, and things like that. But it's also all of that other stuff that, you know, you see on the news, you know weird kittens and you know stupid you know bored you know other apes you know all these derivative projects that popped up and that's where all the mania and the, and the craziness happened in the last year 
you know, I, I really think in terms of royalties, that those types of projects, unfortunately, are conduce, highly conducive to getting around the royalty structure. I, I, I believe those royalties are all going to zero. I don't, I don't see a sustainable model for hanging on to royalties in PFP collections. I, I, you know, and it, I'm not sure it's necessarily a horrible thing, but I, feel, I do feel bad for the creators who are currently have PFP projects who are counting on those revenue streams. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't think the outlook there is very good. And the reason why is because you can create platforms that uh, uh, take advantage of that, those liquidity pools. So you can aggregate those liquidity pools in times of mania when those, when those PFPs are going crazy, people can go onto these liquidity pools and choose to pay zero royalties. And guess what? They're going to, that's I think that's exactly, and you're seeing it happen already. If you separate out art, um, you know, generative and one-on-one, I think that it's a bad omen that PFP royalties are going to zero, but I think there's still time and there's still hope to save royalties in those two other categories. So just for the listeners out there, the royalty debate comes down to essentially after the primary purchase is sold, in my mind. I think you can still collect royalties on a primary sale. On a secondary sale, this is very unlike the traditional art world, because on a secondary sale, we have now built in tools to allow the creator to collect a royalty payment every time that piece is sold. I view this as fantastic. I mean, I think this is, again, this is empowering creators. This is allowing creators. These are people who are, and this is kind of an R&D engine for humanity. And now we want to take away a, a beautiful, you know, this fantastic revenue stream that we've created for these people to continue to create and send that to zero. I, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm quite disgusted by the whole thing. But I do think it's it, it's not too late to save that royalty stream. And, and I actually am pretty optimistic, more optimistic today than I was yesterday, for sure. And that, that, that stream can be saved. And the biggest reason why is because Art doesn't trade like PFPs. Art is not highly liquid. Art, you know, these are larger, chunkier transactions. You might get one or two trades, maybe. I mean, you know, at best, it's not a high frequency type of type of event to trade a Fidenza or to trade an X copy one of one. It's a, you know, it happens once in a while. So therefore, it's not obvious to me that anyone has an incentive to build a platform to get around royalties in something that trades once a year at best. AC, your thoughts? So I, I would say the profile picture market, your board, your board apes and the like, um, are, yeah, royalties to zero. Um, it's, it's hard to tax on that stuff and they live on volume and attention. And so I, I, don't, know, um, I don't know how any PFP creator would get that back. They'll try to maybe incentivize paying it with like memberships. Uh, Ape Fest will likely not have anyone that bought or sold a, royal, uh, a royalty-free board ape, but um, it, it's just you know it's interesting. Um, I've loved Fubar. Uh, that's zero x f o o b a r. Fubar wrote a fantastic piece on royalties like months ago. Prescient piece. It was inevitable. Um, they're not on-chain enforceable, and so it's inevitable for someone to come and take it away. Um, some exchange to come and take market share and for users to go there. It, it was just like, it was sad, obviously, when creators were anticipating it um, or, or you know, anticipating that income. I think 
in the one of one and generative art space, you'll probably still see royalties paid by sellers who care about their relationship with the artist. Um, they want to take care, they want to take part maybe in the future primaries. And I think ultimately, you know, creators are going to have to work on their primaries a lot more carefully. And that might be, you know, 6529 has mentioned it on Twitter. It just means more inflation. This is like tax or inflation. How do you want to, um, you know, which, which, which would you like? So it, it kind of comes with the cryptoification of all markets on chain that, that art, like the one of one and generative art are just going to be subject to um, what the PFP volume is kind of forcing and uh, TBD on the solution. I, I you know, um, I, the royalties are taxed on the person selling as they're leaving something. And so I didn't think that they were going to be sustainable for a long time. I just hope, uh, I, I, I hope artists could, uh, this crypto in general, whether you're an NFT artist who came to the space strictly to sell art, the thing with crypto is that it, it kind of kills anybody who cannot improvise with conviction. And so you, you kind of, you can't be a deer in the headlights in crypto markets because they're just so ADHD, hyper aggressively, like, you know, inefficiencies just get like flattened and smart money, you know, so I, I you know, I am deeply concerned with any artist who was hanging on to secondary royalty income streams, uh, you know, secondary transactions, breeding royalties, which bred income. So I would like to, you know, help artists kind of pivot into a direction that uh, is a little, you know, more friendly for them on the primaries. And, you know, I, I'm watching to see how kind of this plays out. Yeah, so the, you know, one thing to just add on to that, I mean, the just the, the disruption in this space is, again, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning of the podcast, you know, we have never seen markets like this ever. And what happened with royalties is that um, you had a couple of exchanges of open seas dominate the volume it still does, although to a lesser extent today, and you had a couple of exchanges differentiate themselves by going to zero royalties. And that persisted actually for a little while. Some people traded there and it wasn't that big a deal. And then you had one particular exchange in the last month come out with a very slick uh, user interface and take 20% market share in a month. I mean, holy moly, that is an astounding number to me. I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever seen disruption like that in my entire career. And that is incredible. So OpenSea had to respond, and they are responding right now. Nothing's definitive yet, but it does look like they are heading in the direction of no royalties. Um, and unfortunately, they have a lot of artists on that platform. Um, and I don't, I'm not dumping on OpenSea at all. They, I actually think they made the right decision. They had to do this. They have to do this because they're going to lose massive amounts of market share because most of the trading is not in art. The problem is, is that you also rugged all the artists on the platform. So I think to date, what we've seen is the industry leading the charge on this towards zero. I'm actually interested in seeing what happens when the artists uh, could, you know, construct some sort of response, because I actually think the artists have a lot more power in this debate than they think. They're just not as well organized uh, to, to come up with a response yet. But I do, I do think that one is coming because there's no obvious reason to me why a one-of-one one artist or why Tyler Hobbs, a generative artist, needs to be on a PFP platform like OpenSea and like some of these other ones that are out there. I, I really think that they can organize and, and, and create their own model. 
Just because they're NFTs doesn't mean they're all the same. There's one of one art, there's POVs. I hope the artists are careful. These are permissionless bearer assets. These tokens are bigger than what they might be thinking. Like art is important and an artist thinks that their creation is the most important thing. And I appreciate that. But what we're doing here in crypto is like a really, you know, so you're going to have that that wave of the market kind of forcing what's going to happen. Um, and I think artists need to be able to surf that wave. Don't fight it uh, because this is your market. This is what you sell into. That's super insightful. And we've had many artists here on the show and other Real Vision shows and certainly share their perspective on what really brought them to NFTs. And you know, obviously one of the main things is that that royalty that that hopefully continues to support their creativity and their career. So I'm hopeful to see the industry really come to a resolution. And I personally think, you know, we're in the first inning, um, usually the first iteration of anything is not really the end all. Um, I agree with you both that, you know, we should separate PFPs and, and art and, and maybe provide, you know, dedicated marketplaces that allow those artists to connect closer to the collectors and, and be able to select those collectors a little better and, and make sure that those collectors really want to stay within their, within their, you know, collector artist community. Um, shifting roles a little bit or shifting gears a little bit here once again, as we come to the top of the hour, um, a topic that I think the three of us have very, very, very close to our hearts uh, very active members in, in this community. It's a community of builders, of OGs, of collectors. Um, you know, you mentioned the power of the memes and how, you know, humanity thrives on memes. Um, you guys are on the personal side and the institutional side, big holders of crypto thick butts. And I would <laughs> love, I would love to kind of just get, you know, put on your, your institutional investor hat. And share with us why bots and, you know, why the fund continues to add them every season, uh, building, again, one of the best bot collections out there. So crypto bots are, um, for your audience, a, a silly, interesting, weird, you know, cartoon that was made long before blockchain and long before they were put on chain. It was, they've been out in the, I don't know quite how long, but they've been out for quite a while. And what ended up happening, and I find this so fascinating, is I think it's actually a really interesting and great case study for why Web3 is so interesting. I mean, believe it or not, it really is. And, and here's what happened. Crypto dick butts to me on the internet represent degenerate idiots. And, and I count myself among them. I own a really good one. I mean, I own a couple of good ones. But I am for sure a degenerate idiot in my off season. You know, like... Uh, you know, my name's Batsuit Young. I mean, it doesn't get more, you know, dumber than that. So, you know, they, it represents, you know, this sort of degenerate idiocy culture on the internet. And what happened was someone, a, a genius, this genius in, in, in Discord, decided to organize them in a collection. And, and what that did, and, and, and by tokenizing them and by organizing them into sort of an NFT collection, what that did is it organized the degenerate idiots. And it turns out there's a lot of degenerate idiots on the internet. Again, I count myself among them. So when you organize degenerate idiots, the power, it's unbelievable. I mean, you can just go in the crypto dick butts and it's absolute insanity there in there sometimes. But it's fun. It's interesting. It's like, it's, it's you know, 
it's an opportunity for professionals like me. I mean, I, I, I'm loathe to call myself a professional after this discussion, but a professional like me gets a chance to act like a degenerate idiot now and then. And I like it. I mean, I'm a shit poster too every once in a while, as, as we all are. We're here to have fun. It's not all like, you know, serious. I'm, you know, super, you know, serious Mr. Chad or digital or digital art buyer or whatever. I mean, I'm, it, I just, I, I don't know. I ruffle that type of, of culture. That's that's the old culture. That's the culture that I'm trying to get away from. The new culture is fun. The new culture is, you know, again, I can act like an idiot on, on social media, but I'm also, you know, have a day job doing doing what I'm doing here. So I really think that, that crypto dick butts, they represent this culture on the internet of just acting sort of funny and foolishly or whatever. And it was captured in, on, on blockchain somehow and organized. And that really, you know, became the power of, of that meme. And I can't think of a better one. I, I think that is ground zero for degenerate idiots. And I, I, I truly believe in them over time. Obviously I own one, like I said, so. yeah, you own a few bets. You, you own a yeah. few. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah. Well, well I, I mean, I think in a world where like 24 year olds who lived, you know, uh, like one good bull market are writing Twitter threads like they're Paul Graham, um, you know, and it's like, it's like, hey, uh, don't take yourself too serious. Like the ownership of a crypto dick butt is a way of uh, financially, you have to spend, you know, north of like $3,000 or something. I got to look at the floor price. And then it's also like, you know, hey, I'm not throwing this money away. I see value in in this memetic, uh, this this like the power of you know memes, and then and then the important social signal is I don't take myself too seriously, and it's created this fantastic filter of co collectors, able to like we're not talking you know uh, people who lucked up in like the right coin, uh, like Meltem, it's you Sergio. Uh, bat soup, like phenomenal Arthur Hayes, like people who uh, have built crypto for a very long time since like 2013 or earlier, spend a lot of their free time in these group chats and having fun with each other on this. It's kind of like our our vent from you know the the potential that we do take ourselves too seriously and this doesn't become fun. And so this is kind of where we we have this uh, vent release valve, you know, it's like an aviation term where you're able to let off some steam, pr laugh about like dicks and butts and stupid, silly things. And again, yeah, the countercultural moment, like no art movement was embraced by its predecessor. And so this, these are kind of like better than board apes. Like, don't make fun of, like, you know, people use board apes. It's like, no, 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 no. Look at my crypto dick butt. It's even more ridiculous than you think. And we're spending money on this. And I'm putting my attention behind this. And I have plenty of other things I could probably be doing with my life. But this is where I want to be with the people that also own this. So, you know, the last thing about the PFP vertical is that it's a very good solution for human loneliness on the internet. It is a way of, like, socially producing a Dunbar of people that you could embrace and be and be like communal with and you know still have your guard up there's bad actors in every collection like I'm not saying just like get naked with these people it's kind of got this Metcalf's law uh, effect within it where like people severely misunderstood board apes when they and you know and, and like they were making fun of monkeys until they went to half a million dollar floor um and you know that was really like there was a lot of exuberance and and, and euphoria within that but
it had this network effect, like perfectly executed in a JPEG. And so, you know, just taking it down a notch, not getting necessarily ridiculous with an entry price, but finding a community with that kind of effect in its in its uh, in its ranks, we'll call it, is a very 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 powerful thing. My fellow dick butts are invited to my house in Miami. They could see my art. I trust them, and I think that that is like not necessarily something I would extend to my other social uh, collections. We'll call them in my portfolio, but dick butts persist. And one dick equals one butt. And we kind of have this like incredible mimetic uh, religious culture, cult here. Uh, I think dick butts are quite a fun way of uh, making sense of all this ridiculousness. And if you're, if you're interested, if the listeners here are interested in, in dick butts, they should definitely, definitely not type in people crypto dick butt into the oh, uh, man. google people's the uh by far the highest grossing you know digital artist of all time sold a piece last year for 69 million dollars create and he creates these artworks once a day he calls them every days and the other day he created a crypto dick butt that um it still haunts me you know i'm it a dick the butt fan Look, it, broke, it, it broke the internet i think it's only added value to kind of this mimetic path that dick butts are on it's like the 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 grail artist of this era, uh, the highest selling Christie's artist and stuff for digital art is, um, you know, adding lore to kind of our, our storyline here. And it is extremely repulsive, uh, but art is supposed to evoke something in you. And I thank people for doing this, uh, but don't, don't, don't Google it to the listeners. Do not Google it. Um, just go to Crypto Dick Butts on OpenSea and kind of have a giggle if you're curious what it looks like. But uh, and yeah, yeah. I think you guys touched on a couple of really good concepts to kind of like close our conversation on, you know, tokenized culture, network effects, Metcalf's law, NFTs today, you know, silly JPEGs sometimes, really good digital art 101 generative. But this is just the beginning. What are what other industries and and obviously AC you mentioned you know you trying to implement blockchain provenance verification in the aerospace industry in which you um, you had your businesses before this. What other industries do you guys see uh, adopting NFTs and really kind of fulfilling that prophecy of non fungible tokens becoming the Trojan horse that helps us onboard you know the next hundred million one billion people. To blockchain a few years ago quite a few years ago there was a gentleman named kevin kelly who wrote an essay called 1000 true fans chris dixon evolved it last year i believe it was uh into something that applied to nfts it's a must read i think it's one of the best essays i've read on book three um and and it, it, the story goes as follows i'm paraphrasing it but there's an old you know sort of maxim in in finance where it's called the 80 20 rule where you make 80 percent of your profits off of 20 percent your best 20 percent customers and, you know, it's, it varies by industry, obviously, but, you know, mar- it's generally in marketing firms. They, they, they kind of start there and tweak it. There is no better use case for that that I have ever seen than in this space, than in NFTs in particular. And I'll tell you why. You, you, you're an artist, let's say. You sell your NFTs. You sell your artwork. You might follow up that piece with, I don't know, it's what's called an edition drop. You know, you might sell 100 pieces that look exactly the same for a much more accessible price than you could buy the one-on-one piece. Let's say you sell them for, I don't know, 100 bucks each. 
after that sale is completed, if you've sold out, you know exactly who your true fans are. You know exactly the wallets. You know, a lot of times you know their names. You know they spend money on you. They are your true fans. They are absolutely willing to support you and buy this piece. And most of the time, a lot of these additions, you know, they don't really trade. It's, they're probably not worth what you paid for them at the time. Who knows? Maybe someday down the road they will be, and that's fine. But those collectors have put all that aside and decided proactively, we want to own a piece of this artist because we love them so much. And what ends up happening? 99% of the time, the artist ignores that person and you never hear from them again and they move on to the next project and so on and so forth. It's the exact opposite of what they should do. So with that as a backdrop and, and trying to get back to your question, the use case for NFTs for me, and again, I know everybody hates this word, but the use case is phenomenal. You, I mean, you think about it from a customer segmentation strategy. These people, instead of you paying hundreds of dollars as a mar as a firm to go out and find those customers, they've actually come and found you, which is incredible to me. I mean, you know, Dolce Gabbana, or and and I've seen you know McDonald's, and I've seen all kinds of these brands sort of come in um, and test this market out, and it's a brilliant strategy. They should absolutely be here, and you're going you're to see more and more brands coming to the space. And, and Nike bought Clone, you know, Artifact last year, which runs Clone X. They've made millions of dollars in, in, on Clonex. People have voluntarily come and said, we want to be here. And I, I think as you take that model and spread it out across brands and across products, it becomes far more powerful than you having to go find those customers. Very specifically, I think if you think about NFTs in the near term, what, what it can disrupt are, is such a good use case for the NFT business because digital art existed. There was no way to monetize it. Intermediaries all over the place. NFTs come along, bam, you can go direct to your, your truest fans um, and, and cut all that out. What is another great industry for that? I mean, music to me strikes me as a very, very interesting use case. You know, labels take incredible amounts of, of royalties over time. You might, you could probably make the argument that some people deserve that and, and so forth, but any industry where intermediaries are taking extraordinarily high rents and it's questionable whether or not they are providing ongoing value that is worthy of that of that rent taking is an industry that's ripe for this type of disruption in my mind and i like i said music is a really good one but but there are many many others there's there's quite a, a lot of this uh, intermediary rent seeking and rent taking um going on out there I, I I laugh about the IBM commercial of like four years ago about tracking a, a tomato on the blockchain because <laughs> I think it's like inverted. I need to see something worth $5 million, like a landing gear for a 777 or something, right? Like um, start with the easy stuff where like, I, so to put my aviation hat on, the way the world works now in aviation is like if a part fails on a 787 and like, the plane is leaving in let's say two or three hours uh ideally there's a you know a stock room nearby that the airline or it's like one world or star alliance partner could kind of support but if not they go online they search it in a directory and people lie in this directory and they misrepresent the condition and the readiness of a part just so that they could get the order but like in the urgent need of one the demand does not know the current state and so what better way of like actually proving the state of an asset than on chain. If you could actually like 
upload into the metadata something that could prove its current state, then like you reduce billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars of supply chain noise. And airlines end up actually overpaying the shit out of a part just to reduce the lead time of like, you know, first of all, if it's FedEx or UPS, like they will never want to tell a customer a two-day priority package is going to take three days. So like the money they spend to correct a failed part on wing and the time. So I want to kind of paint the picture kind of at the, like what I saw when I first got into crypto. But as I see kind of how hotels and reservation systems work, and I think 6529 and Raul were talking about this like 10 months ago, 6529 was talking about how, uh, you know, a hotel reservation in August in like, you know, the south of, uh, you know, the, the south of France, it could potentially be tradable on OpenSea because the owners are no longer able to go. And the hotel chain could, they've still sold the reservation and then they could maybe make a, a, a royalty through some kind of like, only somebody who pays the royalty is able to really resell this hotel chain. This, so um, I think it's interesting who are going to be the first, which industries are going to be the first adopters. I could tell you Boeing and Airbus, when I have always had the conversations with them, were very eager uh, because they do think their intellectual property is monetized by third parties that they would like to not have in the picture. And if those third parties could now cough up a royalty or at least add value through the providence and, and show or, or do some kind of data sharing, then there's – so um, I do think it's inevitable. I hate to speak with such assurance. I just know the world of blue ink signatures and like misphotocopied stuff and the oopsies that happens with it. It tallies up to billions of dollars in supply chain inefficiencies. We're working through an inflation crisis because supply chain – like there is just – I'm not talking in the immediate term, but I'm talking in like the 10-year thesis that the fund operates in. There is a lot of use cases to move on chain. We do feel like it's pretty inevitable. Um, and we do act like kind of conduits if we can on certain industries. But, um, you know, I, I could name many, but start at the, I think start at the obvious stuff at the top, medical. I mean, just things that, you know, and you could obscure kind of the information that's stored on chain. You can still prove it off chain. There's just like, I, 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 just smile with excitement and uh i'm sure my punk is not smiling right now but i just think um the inevitability is quite large and every day that happens even on days like today uh with like the cz sbf fiasco like the technology has not taken a hit DeFi is not really you know nfts like these public we, we take these public headline risks right that really set the space back and yet the technology is continuing to onboard just the best technologists of our generation. And it's like, I don't know, um, you know, I've been asked often the bear case of crypto and I'm like, I think it's pretty dystopian. It's like, are we just not free on the internet forever? Um, and like, are all the people moving to build in this free world, uh, are, are they stupid for this decision of like believing that they could act freely online? Um, and so, yeah, I just want to wind it down with like, um, I, I, I pretty much believe in my soul, uh, multi-trillions in, in assets tradable on chain in like a 10 year, uh, time horizon where like, you know, um, there is just so much that needs to move away from central places of failure. It's not just money. It's also assets and just like other balance sheet objects. Um, 
Awesome. That leaves me really, really pumped for the future. Um, it's been an amazing, amazing conversation hearing both your backgrounds. Um, you know, hopefully the audience understands that, you know, NFTs and trading them is not just a bunch of kids in their mother's basements swapping around monkey pictures, but there's real institutional use cases and applications with really, really smart people like AC, Batsup Yum, and the whole 6529 Capital team behind them as well as many other teams that are building out there for this future where intangible assets will be on chain, industries will be much more efficient, and we'll continue to develop this new internet culture um, for, for the future generations. Gentlemen, thank you very much for spending this hour with us today. Um, I would like to hear any final words from you. Uh, maybe if you want to share where people can find you online or anything else you want to leave our audience with today. Uh, you guys can find me on uh, Twitter at AC the Collector. Um, don't judge me. And I think you know. Look, I I think um, as ridiculous as like Monkey JPEGs and and these conversations get or dick butts, like this is a secular trend of crypto just eating so much of the world and the smartest people joining it. It is a tsunami, and it is something that. Um, it's an honor to be just a small little like uh, participant with giants who I use their product. Like I was looking at, you know, some of the products that, like you're speaking with founders who have built apps that take 13% of your screen time. Um, and they're here to add value. And so this is not, I don't think this is something anyone, uh, you know, even in the macro and what's happening secularly, this is a trend that is, um, you know, you'll probably get run over, uh, doubting it or fading it or, you know, whatever terminology people want to use. And these are typically generational opportunities where, uh, you find your way to like surf kind of the momentum. Um, you find your way in, in the, uh, <laughs> in the tsunami, but, um, I, I think net positive for, you know, uh, global happiness, we'll call it is kind of this movement and it's an honor to be a part of it. I would just say, you know, in closing, that that the space can be quite intimidating. It, it, it this, the amount of barriers and just it's a horrible usability experience. I, one of the worst I've ever seen. I mean, you have to set up a MetaMask and find Ethereum and store it and you know buy it and pay fees and all that other stuff. It, it's just a disaster. The the front ends are all terrible, but yet somehow it's thriving in spite of all that. I mean, it's it's incredible to watch, and you know we're. You know, it's a bear market, but, but you know, things are chugging along fine. And we're still, you know, the secular trend is, is much higher. So I would just encourage listeners, if you haven't explored the space, it's, it's worth your time. It is one of the more fascinating intellectual exercises I've ever been through. You have to set up a MetaMask. Yeah, you have to find Ethereum. Okay, go on, buy something small, buy something for 10 bucks. You know, just, just get your feet wet. It's always more interesting to do it by trying than it is by by you know, jumping in full speed and just get your feet wet a little bit and understand the space a little bit. It is changing quite a lot. It's it's one of the more innovative sub-segments of, of tech right now. And again, I think a lot of people are cynical about it. You know, Saturday Night Live had a big skit on it last year. And, it, you know, it's, it's easy to roll your eyes. Oh, those tech bros, those crypto bros over there, they're all, you know, what are they up to again? You know, they're idiots, but, you know, we kind of put them into the backwater. No, actually, this is, you know, the probably single best use case for crypto out there. And I think it's a really good one and it's worth spending a little time on. So that's, that's what I would say in closing. 
Awesome. Well, thank you again. And folks, yeah, go and try it. And um, thank you for tuning in today for Raul's Adventures in Crypto. This is Sergio Silva sitting in for Raul today. Uh, we'll see you soon. Hi, thanks for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed listening, I've got a free membership waiting for you. If you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're not ever going back to a pre-crypto world. Blockchain technology is transforming literally everything from communities to healthcare to real estate to, well, everything. That's why in 2020, we launched Real Vision Crypto, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital assets video channel. Right now, Real Vision Crypto is helping more than 300,000 members around the world understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation and maybe of all time. And even better, Real Vision Crypto is completely free. All you need to do is input your email address and you get full access to all of the videos and the incredible emails too. Please visit realvisioncrypto.com. That's realvisioncrypto.com and start learning about this incredible world.